Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I have spent most of the last week writing a tribute to Chilly Morning, the incredible eventing stallion who sadly died last week. It's not not what I wanted or planned to spend my week doing, but it has actually been a pleasure to go back through all of his top competitions and, and speak to his owner and his riders. And it's been a fun week, although obviously incredibly sad news. This week, we should all have been at the Land Rover Burley horse trials had it not been for COVID-19. And so because we all miss Burley, we thought we'd be celebrating the event on the podcast with a special guest, William Foxpit. William will be talking about his record-breaking six wins at Burley, his first memories of the event and why it's so special. I just remember my first trip to Burley when I was 20. It was very, very physical and demanding. One that we all want to conquer. I'll also be joined by our news team to talk about this week's big stories, women in equestrian sport, new research around strangles, and the positives that have come out of this unusual year. Finally, Alan Davies, super groom to Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin, gives his advice on keeping horses healthy on long lorry journeys and how best to monitor them. Keep an eye on the temperatures because that's the first way of seeing if they're gonna get trouble sick or not. So even on short trips, it's really important to keep a thermometer with you. So that's enough of me. Zip up your body protector and let's get going. My guest this week is one of the very greatest event riders of not only his generation, but also of all time. He's won 20 senior championship medals and taken top honours at every one of the Northern Hemisphere five stars, with 14 wins at that level in total, more than any other rider. Perhaps most remarkably, he fought back from a serious head injury in 2015 to compete at the Rio Olympics less than a year later, where he finished best of the British. He is, of course, William Foxpit. Hello, William. How are you? Hi, Pippa. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much. You're all good form here and we're returning to normal. Yeah, it's, it's good to be getting back to normal a little bit after this very, very strange summer. William, there are so many aspects of your life and career that I think we could talk about for hours. But because it's the week when we should all have been at Burley, we're going to focus on that event. And of course, you're our guest because you've won Burley six times on six different horses. It's an incredible achievement. Can you start by telling me what your very first memory is of Burley? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Burley's been very kind to me, hasn't it? I think... Um... You know, it must be my favourite event of all time. I just remember my first trip to Burley when I was 20. I think I was riding a horse that was very green and um, barely should have been there, but I was determined to go and um, wanted to experience it. And it was just so different. It was just such a, a big test. It was very, very physical and demanding. And just... I think the terrain there blew me away. And I would say the terrain at Burley is something that, you know, historically it's, it's got huge respect from the riders and it's one that we're all, one that we all want to conquer. It's a real test of, of horse and rider. And um, it really did hit me that year when I was riding. He's a little bit of a hunter and I was a little bit of a young idiot. And um, I remember thinking, you know, crumbs, are we ever going to get around this and my mother just kept on saying I remember very clearly all the way there on a Saturday morning in the car she comes saying now you know you can pull up at any stage don't carry on if you're not feeling happy you really can pull up and I'm thinking 
She doesn't normally say that. <laughs> no, I was going to say that doesn't sound like the uh, the Marietta Fox bit that, that I'm normally hearing about from you. Obviously, she really did think your horse was quite green to be there. But how did it pan out? Was it success or failure? Yeah, we got round. We got round. I think I was 20th. Um, it was quite a miracle. I think I got 100 time faults. Um, <laughs> I had very little breaks and obviously up and down those hills one thing you do need is total control so i think it took me nearly a minute to get through the trout hatchery because i couldn't stop and turn um and it was just therefore rather slow but it did it was it was really okay he was an amazing horse called fairy sovereign really and he was very bold and it probably was quite scary to watch because goodness knows um you know what my strides were like but he he jumped around for a few time faults and he had a show jump down and it was a very, very happy occasion. I remember it clearly. And that's one of the amazing things about Burley, isn't it? That often actually riders who do have what we would call a, a cricket score of time faults at other events, maybe sort of 20, 30, 40 time faults, as, as you say, maybe 100 time faults. So I think that might be a slight exaggeration, can actually end up in, in the placings because the cross country is such a strong test. It's very true. I think, you know, if you're just getting time faults and you're getting round clear of jumping, you really are, you're immediately in the hunt. And, um, you know, if I'd been a bit more experienced and gone a few direct routes, I would easily have been in, in the top 10. And I was by no means a slick performer, you know, when I was still a young rider. It was just getting the experience. And jumping ahead to your first win, which was in 1994, it was your first five-star victory. What do you remember about that week? I'd gone there, this amazing old boy called Chaka, and I sort of thought, I've got quite a good horse under me, I thought. But it never crossed my mind that I was going to win. You know, Mary there and Curran Dixon and all sorts of riders on Too Smart and didn't really enter my head. I think the lack of doubt was probably why it happened. I hadn't won at that level before. I was only 25, 26, didn't really come into it. But I thought I'm going to have a go. And Chaka was quite good at dressage, which I wasn't. So I was quite excited to be in the lead after dressage, which is something that had never happened in my life. And then kind of nothing seemed to go wrong and it just it just kind of happened and i just remember thinking oh my god if it's if it's that easy maybe i should give up now while i'm ahead because you know i can't quite believe that it's that it's come off <laughs> and um it really will go down in my memory as just one of those unexpected moments that suddenly you've beaten all these amazing riders and you kind of think how how did that happen and was it sort of a watershed moment in your career to get that first five-star victory? Did it change your profile and help you with owners and sponsors and, and really help you make it in the sport? Yeah, it really, it really changed um, everything. I think at that point, people then started to take me a bit more seriously. Until then, I was just university student, ridden a few nice horses, lucky boy, and I could ride cross-country, but no one thought I could do anything else. And I think suddenly they thought, oh, well, maybe maybe he can ride. And I certainly got, I think the next year I got Cosmopolitan from Frank Andrew, who ran Milton Keynes Eventing Centre. And I'm sure he only sent me that horse because I had form suddenly at that top level. He thought that therefore I wasn't that bad a risk. <laughs> um, and I think also what it did for me was it, it suddenly I thought, oh, I can win. You know, maybe I can be good at this. All my career, I'd kind of won pink rosettes and won best best boy awards. I've always said that all through the Pony Club. You know, Pippa and Tina always joke, oh, look, William finished fifth. Oh, he's the best boy. Oh, hello, well done. <laughs> you know. And suddenly I thought, no, actually, I can, 
I can win and maybe I could do it again. Or maybe I should just think, you know, not many of us win a, win a five star anyway. Maybe I should quit while I'm ahead and get a real life. But you didn't get a real life, as you put it. You went on to win five more Burleys. And I feel like your second Burley winner, Highland Lad, is sort of the forgotten one. And maybe that's a really unfair thing to say. But I think if you'd asked me to name all your Burley winners, I could have trotted the other five out like that. But I would have struggled to hit on Highland Lad. Tell me, what was his story and what was he like? Well, he, he came to me just as a big, big brutish Irish horse. Carol Hudson asked me to ride him. I was a big bloke young enough to give him a go and she thought let's give him a chance and never entered my head again that he was possibly going to win and suddenly he pulled off a dressage test which normally he would blow up in a bit um, and blow up enough not to be terrible but just not to be in the hunt cross country he was a good jumper but was he going to gallop round 12 minutes of burley on those hills not probably he was quite irish draft and quite big but yes, on the last day, he was totally going to jump clear. And I can remember thinking, as one of my funny moments of that Burley is, he was so manically excited all week at Burley. Basically, if I dropped the reins, he would just gallop on the spot to going anywhere, leaving his stable, coming back to his stable. And he literally, until the Friday morning, on a long rain, had not walked anywhere. And I just was schooling him on the Friday morning up in the dressage arenas. And it had all been okay, but fairly tense and I just walked back and I said to myself just jokingly right if you can walk back to stables mate you're going to win this what else do you think about when you're walking along and I currently walked every single step the whole way back to his stable and I got back to the stable and thought oh blimey he just relaxed in time to to perform well enough and I think his clear show jumping moved him quite up the order I, I can't remember he might have been after cross country might have been fifth and I think I moved up with a clear to win. So the good, good, happy day. And your third Burley winner, Balancula, he really was one of the Burley greats. He finished the event six times in a row. He was in the top six on four of those occasions. And it's renowned for being such a tough event. It must take a special horse to come back and keep coming back enthusiastically as Balancula did. Yeah, I mean, Balancula was really my Burley machine, wasn't he? I mean, crumbs, how many horses do that? It's a physically the toughest event in the world and to come back and do it six times is not normal and he, he could so easily have won it three or two or three times anyway. He finished once, I think he finished second to one of my horses anyway. So that was a very tough moment for his owners. And also he was owned by my long-standing and loyal owner, Judy Skinner, Judy and Jeremy Skinner and um, Michael Payne, um, their son-in-law. And... Um, it really meant so much that he actually did this because they often played second fiddle to my top horse like Tamarillo. It was always, oh, well, Balancula is his reserve horse. Oh, Balancula will come after him. So it was just great that Balancula had his moments and, and pulled it off. And um, I still wish you know, if I had him now, I'd probably be able to ride him better on the flat. The flat work was not his strong point. But my goodness, he was a brave horse and he was a jumper and remarkably sound. And I think that has to go down as one of his real assets. He, he lasted um, a very busy career. And again, he was a very normal Irish guy. He wasn't a flash thoroughbred type. He was a good old Irish hunter, but he was just a sound one. 
And you touched on the fact there that he was second behind Tamarillo. So you got the one two there. I feel like Tamarillo might need a whole podcast to himself. So we might have to have you back to talk about him. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing I remember about that week when he won was that it was so tremendously wet as it was when he won badminton. He was an extraordinary athlete who came to the fore in those difficult conditions, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. That's when he came out on top because his class just came through and he just kind of canter through the mud like it was a breeze when the going was all great and the weather was lovely other horses gave him much more of a run for his money when he was possibly a little bit cheeky in the dressage or a little bit spooky in the show jumping and therefore other horses came close to him and gave him run for his money but when he um got into that kind of condition at, at badminton and burley when though that ground cross country was so tough he just used to say you know bring it on this is this is this is me he just rose to the top. I think he won Burley with two fences down. Um, you know, a real class machine that, that rose to the occasion. And yes, he was second twice at badminton. And another time he should have won badminton. But I I very stupidly one year on Tamarillo had a run out in the, um, the little badminton village area. And I was just trying to cut the corner and be a bit quick towards the finish. And we just missed it. And that year, I think he'd done a blinking good test. And he would have been, well, in the lead after cross country if I hadn't have done that. So that did hurt a bit. Mm, he feels like the horse who needed the uh, the six star as it, as it would be in the new star system or five star system uh, from when it was four star. He needed that, that, that competition that was a level tougher and then he really was the best horse in the field. We've dashed about because we've gone from Balancula to Tamarillo and we've skipped over Park Ed, who won Burley in 2007. He was an interesting horse insofar as you shared the ride with his owner, Philip Adkins. And even that year when he won Burley, Philip actually rode him in several events at sort of open novice level. That must have been quite a different experience for you, producing a horse who, to, to five star who you didn't have the exclusive ride on. No, that was quite a weird situation because I did very much like to ride my own horses and be the one that actually competed them. So the fact that he did that, um, I don't quite know why I did it. I love Parkmore Ed. Again, he was a little bit of an Irish hunter, but my goodness, he was a he was a goer. He was a clever old horse because he knew what he had to do. If he had to go around with Philip, he was a nice guy and jumped all the jumps and looked after Philip. And when I said, right, I want a bit more, he'd say, okay, yeah. I can do a bit more. And he's a horse I really wish I'd had earlier on. There was so much more there. And um, yes, he was, a, he was a very good horse and pulled it off in Burley. And if you looked at him, you'd never have said he was going to do the, do the terrain round Burley because he was quite a big, big unit of a horse. And um, it would have been a big effort for him. But my goodness, he was a, he was a real worker and just rose to the occasion. Mm, and was also your ride at the Olympics the following year in yes. in Hong Kong, bronze medalist with the British team there. That was that was disappointing because I really went there full of hope for him, and sadly he didn't travel badly, but he got very dehydrated in the journey, and then when he arrived into the heat of Hong Kong, he got again very very unwell and big blood disorder, and he kind of semi had Azateria and tied up. So we were walking for 10 days before his dressage just to be able to get him to be able to compete. If you'd have been at home, you'd never have tried to do that. But again, he came right back and he did it, but he was he was performing well below par and it was all quite a miracle. I think he was only just out of the top 12 with all that handicap. So he, he was a very workmanlike top man, actually. 
Mm, he was 12th individually and it's a real testament to him as you was say he? that he yeah he pulled that off even when he wasn't on his best form as you say and was a kind enough horse to to carry Philip around a lot of events as well so quite a trooper and a servant to the sport yes yes and your most recent winner Park Lane Hawk he's one I remember well he was an ex-race horse he won Burley on his five-star debut he won at Kentucky the following spring and he was third twice more at Burley and then he ended up being one of the first, perhaps the first horses who you competed again after your head injury. What's sort of his place in your sort of pantheon of, of Burley greats? Yeah, well, in, in my opinion, he's a real Burley machine. He was a proper galloping athlete. Um, he never noticed the terrain. He never got tired. Obviously, being a, being a thoroughbred horse, being a racehorse from New Zealand, um, it just made all that galloping so much easier. So he was made for Burley. No, he wasn't perfect at everything else, and he wasn't always very easy to stop. He was quite ongoing. <laughs> but Burley, 12 minutes round Burley for him was a walk in the park, and um, that's where it really, really came off. And I think he wasn't brilliant at show jumping as a, you know, just that's the way he was made. So I think every now and again, a fence down cost him a bit. Um, but the year I think he won, I think he had a fence in hand. And he was lovely on the flat. And yeah, he was, I really, he's a real birdie machine pup. Just found that, found that so easy. Sad, sad year came for him when he went to badminton and he had a heart fibrillation and just turned over the second last fence. He just couldn't do anything. Yeah, that was in 2014, wasn't it? When it was such a tough badminton and he looked like he was storming home and then he just and he was flat on the floor. And he was about to do the, you know, be very close to the time and suddenly he was, yeah, flat on the floor. So it was poor old um, Park Lane that year. Um, it was it was a bad one. But he was a, he's an amazing horse to have. And it's really great that he pulled off Burley because, well, he's made for Burley. Burley's made for him. Am I right in thinking he's still in your, in your yard now? No, he's not. He's gone back to his owner, Catherine Witt. Um, she's been a very loyal owner for me over the years. So it's great to reward her with a, with a, a well, four or five star win. Um, but he's back there in the field now. And he must be... He's 20. 20, yes. So, um, no, Cool Mountain's here. We've got lovely old Cool Mountain, and he's a wonderful part, you know, boy to have here, and everyone rides him, even my boys ride him. Um, <laughs> but no, no, um, Park Lane is back in the field, living a life of Riley, being totally spoiled by Catherine, and um, enjoying the grass in Cheshire. Yeah, it was Cool Mountain that I was thinking of, actually, who's also also 20, but uh, great to hear he's still uh, still in your yard and, and that Park yeah. Lane Hawk is enjoying his retirement. William, looking back at, at all those Burley wins, what is it about the event that sort of suits you so well and, and you suit it? Why do you think there's, there's that sort of great synchronicity between you and Burley? I've no idea. I think, um, <laughs> I think that I like my horses to go cross country in a rhythm at a pace that they're comfortable in to kind of flow. And my horses don't pull and they don't use up too much energy fighting with me and having other opinions. They just get on with a job and they go round. And I think that kind of ease of round might sometimes not do the time because I'm probably not the fastest rider and I waste time accelerating away from jumps and I waste time not cutting a corner. Around Burley, if you get in that good rhythm, and don't have to slow down too much for the fences and just don't have to accelerate too much um, to make up time, your horse does it much easier and it takes less out of them. And I think therefore 
my way of riding suits Burley because I just go in a cog and we tick along and we don't waste time maybe. I, I, I think comes down to cross-country riding because you can produce a good dressage test whether you're at Babington or Burley but I would say the cross-country at Burley requires a better feel for your horse and your ride rather than just watching your watch and thinking minute markers. Mm, I think there's a uh, there's a real old-fashioned horsemanship about about doing well around Burley which is as you say about about feel and and, and riding the horse you're on at the course and not just riding your watch and, and I think also you would probably say yourself that although you're obviously a great rider on the flat the jumping phases have maybe always come more naturally to you and Burley is where the jumping phases really really count the most. Yeah that's very true I don't think you very you don't very often win the dressage winner at Burley doesn't always win Burley it's not about the dressage and that suits me you know I'm not bad at dressage but I'm certainly not one of the best and I think you know the jumping and the horse soundness and the horse being fresh when he gets to Burley I think it's all important you know you've got to aim for Burley rather than just having Burley as one of several events you're going to and trying to win. I think I produced my horses for Burley. They got there ready to go and I've just been jolly lucky. Well, William, I'm not writing you off yet. I'm hoping for a seventh, uh, <laughs> hoping for a seventh Burley win before you retire and before I retire from horse and hound. But uh... thank you. Now, I've got one, one more horse that could do it. One in the old days, I'd have been well, even more excited about him. But I think I'd like to have one more Burley win, and I've got a horse that could just pull it off come on you've got to tell us his name now you can't leave us hanging well, i can say when he wins it next year i can say it was that one can't i <laughs> he's a horse called oratorio and he's he's just such a good galloper and his only fault would be that he wastes a little bit of time being strong so sometimes i have to pull the reins to set him up because he's a bit keen he'll go around barely and he he won't be tired he'll just you know he, he's made for that terrain his dressage and jumping is good enough as well, so I've got to pull it off. But of all my horses, he's got that burly mentality. And he, Oratorio, he's the son of Oslo, your Poe five-star winner, isn't he? Yes, exactly. He's, he's out of a racehorse mare, and so he's got blood, funnily enough, a racehorse mare that Alice and I trained to be a point-to-pointer years ago. So he's got the brain and the ability for jumping, and it was a good mix. I think, I think he's only 75% thoroughbred, but I, it's a good, I wouldn't, ideally want much less so it just does make his life quite easy having that blood so you never know it might it might happen be good be good if i had one more thing to do in my career now i would i would love one more burley on that on well on a horse <laughs> well there we go ladies and gentlemen you heard it here first william foxpit seventh burley winner keep an eye out for him william <laughs> thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure as always to talk to you and, and to talk about burley in this week when we should have been there i know we'll be very sad not to be there it's um it's going to leave a leave a big hole and um we'll just have to wait until next year just just round the corner Absolutely. Thank you, William. Goodbye. Thanks, Pippa. Bye. I'm here today with the full complement of our news team, news editor Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And also our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Are you there, Lucy? Hello. And news writer, Becky Murray. Hello, Becky. Hi, Pippa. 
Big thank you to Becky for joining us since she's technically on holiday this week, but she was so keen to talk about her story. She uh, let me know she'd be happy to, to dip out of her holiday for a few minutes. <laughs> Eleanor, you mentioned earlier that you had an interesting incident with an 11 hand pony this week. And I feel like we need more details on that. <laughs> well, my two girls had to have their jabs and that was fine. And that always makes me think that they wonder what we're doing when, because they're so good to be done. You can just wander out in the field and the vet does them out there. And you think you they must be thinking, you know, you put a head cut on, stab us with something and then walk off again. <laughs> um, but that all went without incident. And then, yes, we had to have the companion pony's teeth done. And because she's in her 20s and tiny, and my friend who owns her had said, oh, you'll probably need sedation. And you sort of think, really? And yeah, my 17 hand mare is much simpler to have her teeth done. <laughs> but the vet was saying, I can't give her any more sedation. <laughs> Did you have to kind of wrestle her to keep her still? Or? <laughs> no, she was she was fine when sedation kicked in, but the vet was quite surprised by the amount she had to have. And then by the end, she was just like, I'm going to leave it there. We've, we've, I was going to do a bit more, but she's already sort of thinking about standing up. And yes, so we thought, no, she's done the job. She's comfortable. Let's leave it there. You wouldn't have thought an 11 hand pony could make that much fuss. <laughs> <laughs> I had an interesting horse incident earlier this week. I went to a clear round show jump show which I always think clear round is a bit of a hopeful term because frankly everyone who's at a, everyone who's at a clear round show is there to practice aren't they because clearly they're not jumping any clear rounds or she wouldn't bother going to a clear round show um, and I did not jump a clear round because when I got to the fifth fence I asked my pony to take off on an improbably long stride and he went no thanks you can go without me uh, so yeah I, I ended up falling off on top of the poles so I am a bit sore and stiff today and I think it's because I'm so old I think you know when you're like 12 you just fall off your pony and bounce don't you but now that I'm an old person when I woke up this morning I definitely knew that I had fallen off yesterday so well, I've got a couple of years on you Pippa and it gets worse <laughs> <laughs> great I'm gonna learn not to fall off now so that I, it doesn't get worse because I don't like the sound of that hmm, hopeful <laughs> right we're going to turn to the serious news now and Becky we're going to talk about your story first you've been looking at something really interesting this week which is women in sport we've obviously had women in competing in equestrian sport for a long time we're proudly a sport where men and women compete on an equal playing field. What's been the trigger for this story? Well, basically, the BBC runs an elite sportswomen survey. Um, it's done every couple of years, and this was the third year's run. And some of the results that came out highlighted concerns around sportswomen starting families or having to make the choice to delay that. Um, topics such as menstruation and if women felt comfortable talking about these things. And you rightly say equestrian sport's fantastic in the respect of women and men competing on an equal playing field. And certainly the riders I spoke to in this mentioned that as well. But I think the surveys acted as a timely reminder that these concerns do exist and it's perhaps um, they're not highlighted very often. And you spoke to some riders to get their reaction and what sort of things were, were they saying? What did you find out? Well, I, when I spoke to dressage rider Laura Tomlinson, um, she touched on the fact that because equestrian sport is such, you know, there's longevity in this uh, sport, which can often mean if a rider wants to have children, it could still be well within her career time. And eventer Janelle Price, she mentioned she actually did take the decision to delay starting a family, having really got going after the London Olympics in 2012. So she waited until after Rio in 2016. But as they both, um, Laura and Janelle said, that's a very personal decision and one many career women can face, whether that's in sport or not. 
Hmm. And there are some measures that governing bodies can take and do take to support women around those sort of decisions on on having children. What sort of things do our governing bodies do to help them? Well, certainly British Equestrian gives support for riders who are on the World Class Programme with sort of advice and access to doctors. And the FBI freezes riders' ranking points in show jumping and dressage. Now, this isn't the case for eventing because of the way FBI events base entries on ranking and qualification requirements. And unfortunately, there isn't plans for that to change just yet. Interesting. There's a difference there between the sports and, and rankings and qualifications. And Becky, there are so many aspects to this. I know when we were, we are an all-female all news team at Horse and Hound, and when we were chatting about this in our news meeting last Tuesday, ahead of you writing the story, you can understand that riders might be anxious about taking a break as to whether their owners will keep their horses with them and bring their horses back, whether they send their horses somewhere else or just, you know, give them a break or, or give them to another rider to ride. Then there's sort of selection. It's sort of a case of, you know, if I speak out about the fact that maybe, you know, I do have problems around menstruation or pain at certain times of the month, that could end up, you know, it could end up influencing selection. You might be nervous for speaking out about that and, and, and about selectors thinking, oh, well, we'll just take a man then because they're not going to have that issue. I think there's even a doping control aspect um, in terms of, you know, taking painkillers um, maybe for period pains. There are just so many different areas here that, that we could get into, aren't there? That's right. And I think one of the key things that's sort of come out is that these topics do still feel a bit taboo. And the key thing is, I guess, getting those conversations going. I was looking forward to working on this story, but even I had to sort of take a second and think, gosh, how do I go to someone and raise these pretty personal things with them? But I think once um, conversations start flowing, everyone does relax a little. And certainly that's something Laura Tomlinson raised was, you know, it's about keeping these conversations open and not shooting someone down if, say, a man says the wrong thing. And certainly women in racing, um, they're doing some really exciting work through a project called Racing Home. There will be more to come from that later in the year when more data becomes available, but certainly they're hoping to look at the support available for women in racing. And hopefully this will be transferable to other equestrian sports too. And Things like helping riders and their employers have these sort of difficult conversations. Mm, you're so right, as it's not not a topic we're always comfortable talking about. And, and when we were talking about it in the news meeting as well, we were saying, you know, will riders be willing to speak to us about it? Is it something that they're they're sort of happy to speak about? And you know, I know it's not something that that you know us girls talk about even with our close friends a lot. So, did you actually find when you went to the riders that they were willing to be quite open, or did you have to speak to a few riders before you found some people who were willing to be quoted? I would say actually they were all very quite willing. You know, I spoke to Holly Smith, the show jumper, um, as I mentioned, Janelle and Laura, and I think they were actually really quite open and really supportive of sort of. Janelle really said, you know, these are personal conversations, but people should be allowed or happy to speak about them if they want to, of course. Mm, and it is a, a personal decision, like you say, and decisions around childbirth, child rearing, and, and, and whether women want to have children. As you say, they are very personal, but when people are elite athletes, it does link into their sport and their career as well. So an important one for, for people to get comfortable talking about and, and bringing up with, with coaches and owners and, and so on. And Becky, thank you so much for taking on that story and for coming on during your week of holiday to talk to us about it on the podcast. No problem. Lucy, we're coming over to you now for a story which is about horse rather than human health. What have you been looking at this week? So it's been quite interesting this week, um, sort of in the light of everyone talking about vaccines and, and things. This is very much about horse health and not human health, but it's interesting that in at a time when everyone 
has been speaking about, you know, vaccines and immunizations and things, that a new Strangles vaccine has actually been uh, in research and there's some quite exciting uh, news following that. So this study was into the effectiveness of Strangvac, which has been published in a peer-reviewed journal vaccine and there's been some quite strong um, support for it from the from the researchers as well the conclusions into it seem quite exciting and I spoke to several other vets as well and Red Wings who have done such brilliant work with their Stamp Out Strangles campaign as well and and all in all it sounds quite a positive step forwards in sort of equestrian world's fight against against this horrible disease. Mm. And and there was some discussion in your story as well about the timings, if that vaccine sort of comes to comes to market and to be used widely in terms of maybe giving boosters in high risk situations. Is that what I understood? Yes, that's my understanding as well. And of course, this is all, you know, those who are saying not on the market yet and it's a way off, but it would be really, really helpful. And and that could be a massive, massive bonus again, if, if that is, is going to be a possibility. And this research certainly certainly indicated towards that, which is definitely positive news. And it's not the only Strangles news this week either, because there's also been some new research into Strangles tests, hasn't there? There has. And again, this one was quite interesting and it took a bit of a while to get my head around, um, to be honest. And I spoke to quite a few people about it because the last thing I wanted to do was scaremonger, if that makes sense. Um, But this was looking into effectiveness of a certain blood test. And with regards to strangles and um, its effectiveness and when it could be used and discussions around that. And I think probably the big takeaway from that is that it's not to say that it's useless, but that it's certainly something to discuss with your vet when you're planning on how to best safety procedures for each individual yards and horses coming into those yards. It's certainly something to just be aware of and to talk with your with your vet to develop the best possible plan for to keep everyone safe, really. Thank you, Lucy. That's such a, a serious, serious illness in horses and, and one that any forward developments are, are very welcome. Mm-hmm. Eleanor, you're up next. This has obviously been a real anus horribilis uh, with COVID-19. We've had events cancelling, businesses going down, a lot of hardship and heartbreak across the world and in the equestrian community. But you've been looking at the positives which have come out of coronavirus for horse sport. What sort of things have you been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been sort of acknowledged from the beginning there would always be some some things that would be good as a result of this awful situation. And I thought it was nice to maybe celebrate some of the, the good things that had happened. Obviously, the British Show Jumping National Championships were held at Bowlesworth. Um, and, you know, who wouldn't want a picture of them jumping with Bowlesworth Castle in the background? But as Ian Graham, the chief executive of British Show Jumping, said, normally this this car fest, which is a family music and car festival, is usually held at Bowlesworth in July. So even on a dry year, it, the venue wouldn't have had a chance to recover from these thousands of people. And so had it not been for covid there wouldn't have been the chance to jump for, you know, amateurs to jump at Bowlesworth. And as he said, he, it was nice. He saw the British Show Jumping Academy children coming in on Sunday and he said their excitement made us all remember why they're working so hard to get the sport going. Um, and then also with the children, Aintree International Equestrian Centre had a junior show where they came up with the idea because they couldn't have normal prize givings. They let the children pose in the Grand National Winners' Enclosure. 
and you know these lovely things that may not be huge but how how lovely to have the opportunity to do that and I think there's been a bit of talk as well about sort of the pressure coming off people realizing how much they enjoy training horses at home and not necessarily having to be pushing towards a goal all the time yeah and I I mean obviously everyone I can't think there will be many horses that wouldn't have benefited or from having a bit of a break during lockdown and yeah uh, we spoke to Sarah Higgins who's a rider who just said it gave her a different perspective and a chance to relax when you're not always going right where's the next show where's the next show to actually sort of step back and take a deep breath and relax and enjoy things. Mm. And Lucy talking of coronavirus positives this ties into another story that you've written this week as well. Yes, it does. And it was interesting just hearing what Eleanor was saying there about riders saying to her about how they've had a different perspective on things. And that's something that I found too with riders that I've been speaking to. But the story that I've gone into this week is uh, volunteering. And of course, with horse sport going behind closed doors, volunteers who the sport just particularly eventing could not run without them and without the wonderful army of volunteers that, that have come out doing this pandemic to help get the sport going again and of course with it being behind closed doors they have a front row seat to watching the action and being back and you know enjoying the sport again and helping other people to enjoy their sport again and I spoke to quite a few organizers I spoke to some volunteers and I spoke to other people involved in running events as well and they've said that they are you know just them personally are really delighted to see their volunteers back but they're also really happy to see new faces and particularly riders and perhaps owners who've got a rider who has multiple owners and multiple horses so they put their hand up to volunteer so that they are able to watch not only their horse but other horses as well and it's just they said that the whole community spirit has been amazing and there's been a few comments about how people will be delighted to have the bun run back when when that's able to get going again but just on the whole there's been a really positive feel from from the whole group of people involved in putting events on and making it work. And I think that's very much not going unnoticed and yeah, wonderful to hear. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you to you two, Eleanor and Becky for joining us with your, your stories. We'll be back next week with more news. Now it's time for some top advice from groom Alan Davies. So in this episode, we're going to talk about traveling horses. Um, long distance travel is what I do a lot of. So I thought I'd just have a, a chat about some of the things that I take into account traveling long distance. The most important thing I think is ventilation. You need to keep all windows and vents open, get as much air through the lorry as possible. Um, be careful when you're packing that you don't, if you're going for a long time and you're taking a lot of equipment, try not to let all the equipment cover up the windows and things. I always take um, a water carrier with me inside the lorry so that if you can't get access to water outside the lorry, you've always got water on the lorry so you can water the horses. For instance, um, I generally travel a lot by the channel tunnel on the train now it's quicker um, and easier than the ferry so <clears throat> it's difficult to get out of the lorry to get to a locker or anything to get water so I make sure I have an old-fashioned bucket inside the lorry with me so when I get onto the train because um, that's about three three hours from home so that's my usually my first stop so I can give them a drink on the train um, and I've got the water there inside the lorry with me and I generally take some hay nets with me some spare hay nets filled up. I like to hang their hay nets 
not too high um, and to the side of them so they're not standing with the hayneck right in their face um, so they, they can get some air and I'd like to hang it just to the side generally to the left so that the windows the air's coming through the window and not blowing into their faces and then I usually take some spare haynets filled up in a spare petition so I'm not um, when I do stop I'm not grappling hay bales and or trying to open bags of haylage and things like that also I will take a big dosing syringe with me because um, some horses don't like to drink out of buckets. Vallegro is quite strange because at home he loves the bucket, he loves to dunk his hay. He has to have a bucket and a water drinker at home because um, if he fills his water drinker with hay then he doesn't have any water so he has to have a dunk, special dunking bucket. But yet when you put him onto a lorry and you put a bucket in front of him he says no I don't think I can which is really strange but that's just how he is. So I take a dosing syringe with me and you know, particularly with the really long trips through Europe, um, I hate them not to drink. So if they're not wanting to take water, then I will syringe water down the throat. Um, I thought I was really crazy when I came up with this idea and I kept it quiet for a while, but I told one of the vets, um, I'd taken um, Vallegro all the way up to Denmark and he asked me how he was and how his drinking was and how what his fluid intake was when I got there and I said well I can tell you exactly because I've measured it because I did it by syringe and he was like that's actually a really good idea and I was like oh I thought everyone thought I was crazy but um, it, was a, it was a good way of making sure that he had fluid and um, it kept me happy that I knew he was getting fluids so, so for long haul trips I like them to have hay um, the whole time um, I think it's good for their system and their, and their grazers naturally so it's good for them to just keep nibbling away and then I save the hard feed for when I get um, to the destination and I usually feed them on the floor when I get there so they can stretch down and their um, lungs and things can drain because um, being tied up on the truck for all that time is usually not that good for them and they can get a little congested so it's a good idea to give them a mash or their Harvey when you get there um, and let them get their heads down. Um, and also just keep an eye on the temperatures because that's uh, the first way of seeing if they're going to get treble sick or not. So um, even on short trips it's really important to uh, keep a thermometer with you and um, keep an eye on their temperature because if they're going to get treble sick their temperature will go up. So yeah those are probably the most important things I can think about at the moment. Um, Vallegro is a super traveller. I was very lucky, you know, I've been travelling him for like eight years and someone worked out we've done 75,000 kilometres together, which is like one and a half times around the world. And, and he just loves going on the truck um, and he's trusted me to travel all over the world. We've been on planes and trains and boats and goodness knows what all forms of transport even we got picked up from the airport in america one time in a in a trailer just him and me being trailered through new york and he's just followed me and as long as there's a hay net and a bucket of water he will go anywhere and do anything so i've been tremendously lucky um with him so just make sure you're well prepared you've got everything you need and again it, it's common sense know your horse know what they like what they don't like and hopefully everything will go well and good luck thanks alan next week alan will be back with advice on managing horses in autumn and winter as we move into those colder seasons it certainly seems like my horse has grown a winter coat overnight in the last couple of weeks so autumn and winter are definitely on their way
We'll also be talking to Ellis Taverna Burns, rider of the Supreme Champion, the politician at the recent BSPS Championships. And of course, we'll be mulling over the week's news as always. Thank you for joining us this week. And don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. See you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.